Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. The record-breaking wildfires raging across Canada this summer have burned nearly 30 million acres. That's the size of the state of Virginia. Billowing smoke from those fires has worsened air quality on the East Coast for weeks, raising health concerns. It's a familiar experience for us on the West Coast. California has seen back-to-back years of orange skies, devastating wildfires, and destruction. But this year has felt different. California's years-long drought was ended by a soggy winter, and the Bay Area had an unusually chilly June. So many of us may not even be thinking about wildfire season. But state fire officials are cautioning that we shouldn't get too comfortable. Today on Fifth Emission, how do we evaluate this year's fire risk in the state, especially after record-breaking rains? Chronicle reporter Curtis Alexander joins me to discuss how California has been preparing for fire season and what the slow start so far may mean. Later, I'm joined by Chronicle reporter Jessica Flores, who will share how residents of one fire-prone neighborhood in the Oakland Hills are anxious about the next major firestorm. There's a massive amount of vegetation here, and in the last year, even more due to the rains. This is all fuel for a fire. This is quite literally a matter of life and death. Jessica will share how residents are organizing to demand utility company PG&E act quickly to help keep their homes and families safe. First, Curtis Alexander is here with an update on this year's fire season. Curtis, welcome to Fifth Emission. Thanks for having me. Curtis, we've had some really hot days recently, but it feels like, you know, the winter rain and the cooler spring has possibly set us up for maybe a milder summer. Does that mean we're in a good place when it comes to wildfires? Well, so far, so good. Looking at the number of fires that have burned so far this season, we're at a fraction of the number that normally burn at this point in the year. Only 10 to 20 percent of the acreage that normally burns by now has burned. So we're still starting the fire season, but we're off to a good start. Uh, The forests, the hills, the valleys are relatively moist vegetation moisture levels are running about a month behind in terms of drying out, I'm told by fire ecologists. And that means if we get a spark from an errant campfire or from a down power line, it's not as likely to ignite a big forest fire or grass fire. Up in the higher elevations, uh, there's still snow on the ground up there. The rivers and the creeks are still surging with water. So it's going to be several weeks before we see big fires there. Along the coast, things are drying out more quickly. We had that bout of heat over the 4th of July holiday. It's gotten a little cooler since, but we could have another heat wave and uh, we expect more heat as the summer continues and that will begin to dry things out. Um, Because of the wet winter, we had a lot of new growth of brush and grasses, especially at the lower elevations. And um, when the drying begins, that stuff is going to be ripe for burning. Fortunately, that stuff burns not as long, not as dangerously as the old growth, but it's something to watch out for. 
So then what's the best case scenario we're looking at for a wildfire season? Yeah, the best case is that things stay cool, the landscape stays moist, and uh, we don't see sort of peak fire season until August, even September. And then uh, we hope that the rains in the fall come early and sort of put it end quickly to the high danger season. Mm. Now, as we all know, this very wet winter we had, it broke the state's years-long drought. How much of a long-term impact will this have on the state's wildfire outlook? Most climate scientists expect there to be more fires and more acreage burned in the coming decades. And we've seen that over the past several years with so many fires and so much acres burned. And you look at the studies and since the 70s, something like four or five times as much land has burned in California. Um, So it's nice to have one wet year. um, But with that backdrop of rising temperatures, um, things probably won't get better over the long run. I should also mention that this wet year came at the heels of the driest three-year period on record in California. So Mm -hmm. we expect to have wet and dry continuing going forward. But, um, you know, beneath that, the undercurrent of um, increasing heat. Now, off the heels of such horrific wildfire seasons in recent years, you know, I think a lot of people are wondering, has the state been preparing for future wildfire seasons? Have we learned anything to get us more ready? Yeah, the state and the federal government have been doing quite a bit to try to prepare. And um, I should probably mention first that um, they've increased their firefighting capacity, especially CAL FIRE, the state's firefighting agency. Over the past few years, they've hired thousands more firefighters on engine crews, on hand crews. They've also added a lot of fancy high-tech equipment, including Black Hawk helicopters, which enable them to get to fires quicker and do the initial assault more effectively. Federal government has also tried to increase their firefighting ranks, but they've stumbled a little bit with recruitment and retention. Uh, One thing that happened last year that was good for federal firefighters is that salaries were raised quite a bit. They also got some additional benefits. As far as fire prevention goes, I think one of the priorities of both the state and federal government is um, trying to make forests and the landscape more fire resilient, healthier. We know that fire is a natural part of um, the forest ecology, the trees, the plants need it for reproduction. It helps create optimal conditions for wildlife. But most fire ecologists will say that Mm -hmm. there's too much understory, there's too much buildup of fuels in the forest. So the the, the goal has been between CAL FIRE and the Forest Service is to reduce some of that buildup by doing prescribed burning and doing mechanical thinning and clearing of brush and small trees. And you have seen a lot more of that done in recent years. And how close is the state in meeting fire prevention goals that they've set? On the landscape level, fuels treatment and forests front, um, they're still a long way behind. Um the federal government and the state government have a collective goal of treating about a million acres of forest annually by 2025. And we're still two years off from that targeted deadline. But um, if you look at the numbers like this year, um, we'll be lucky if we see a collective treatment of 200,000, 250,000 acres, which is well shy of that seven digit goal. 
most fire ecologists and foresters will say that California needs to see at least a million acres burned every year or uh, treated every year in order to get the landscape in better conditions. There's about 33 million acres of forest in California. And even when you do the treatments, the burning or the thinning, the vegetation grows back. So you need to do it again in five, 10, 15 years. So um, there still is a lot of work to be done. In addition to the efforts you just described, homeowners have also been doing things like creating defensible spaces around their houses and properties. What do fire experts say are important strategies on that front? And then also, what are the limitations? I think one of the biggest success stories has been the fire prevention efforts at the local level. You've seen communities organize to create groups of people where they clear out brush and trees in neighborhoods. And you've seen the creation of fire safety councils that are even creating fuel breaks around communities so that if a fire approaches, it's going to slow down and give firefighters time to get in there and put the fire out. Um, I, I, I think one thing that the state and federal government could probably do more of to help on a community level. And I think fire experts agree is put more money into home hardening. Uh, It's clear that if your home has fireproof roofs and better windows and fireproof decks, things like that, um, it's a lot less likely to burn in a wildfire. Uh, Some people say that more government funding should go into home hardening than the landscape level treatment because it can be more effective. Um, But that too is very expensive. And sometimes politically it can be hard to just turn over money to homeowners to improve their homes. Mm. You said that we don't really quite know what this year's fire season is going to look like. What makes it just so difficult to predict the severity of a fire season? There's a lot of factors that go into starting a fire and having a big fire season. Um, I'm just thinking about last year, 2022, it was the third year of drought. The prior two years were two of the biggest fire seasons in state history with millions of acres of burned. Things were super dry last year, yet we only saw about 300,000 acres burn. And fire experts thought it was going to be a really bad year and turned out to be really light. Um, so, you know, one of the things that you need um, or that we've seen in these big fire years uh, are sort of these freak weather events. Um, in 2020, we had all those complex lightning fires break out in the Bay Area, up in the North Bay, the East Bay. You saw it in the Santa Cruz Mountains. You saw the big fires in the North State, like the August Complex, which became the largest fire in California history at over a million acres. These were all lightning started. You had several lightning strikes, and they create small fires, which all sort of join together into big fires. And it just becomes explosive and really difficult to deal with. And then the other factor, of course, is wind. And we remember the campfire in paradise and 2018 and the wine country fires in 2017, these were wind-driven fires. You saw embers just being blown in every direction for miles, starting new fires. And that's just incredibly hard to contain and lends itself to just severe burning. Mm. So fingers crossed that, you know, it will continue to be a slower start to wildfire season. How should we be using this time to stay prepared? Fire experts say that if you live in a fire-prone area, make sure your house is ready, harden it as much as you can, clear out the brush, create defensible space around it. Um, Also, you know, one thing is to just have a fire plan, have a go bag ready to go. Talk to your family about where you're going to go if you're evacuated. If you're at work, know where you're going to meet your family. I 
you know, I would also say that even people in non-fire prone areas, San Francisco, more urban areas, also kind of need to think about fire season a little bit. Remember uh, all the smoke that we've experienced and that folks on the East Coast and the Midwest are now experiencing because of the fires in Canada. Mm-hmm. Think about having N95 masks, portable air cleaners, power outages as well. You can live in an area that's not burning and experience a power outage because of the fire. So having a flashlight and candles and backup batteries for devices and first aid kit and things like that can be good to have. Mm. Such great tips, Curtis. Thank you so much. I appreciate all the insight. Thanks for having me. Residents in one neighborhood in Oakland say that having a fire plan and extra masks on hand may not be enough. And that's why they're petitioning PG&E for help. More on that effort with Chronicle reporter Jessica Flores after a quick break. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Northern California's largest utility company, PG&E, has been held responsible for more than 30 wildfires. Its equipment and aging infrastructure has been blamed for tragedies that resulted in dozens of deaths and thousands of homes destroyed. In response, the company announced two years ago a plan to bury overhead power lines in high fire risk areas. Chronicle reporter Jessica Flores reported on how residents in one Oakland neighborhood are asking to be included in that effort, as the memory of a devastating wildfire three decades ago still haunts many of them. Jessica Flores, thanks so much for being here. This effort to bury power lines is called undergrounding. Tell me more about what PG&E is trying to do. Yeah. So undergrounding is the process of burying overhead power lines that you see on the streets beneath the ground. And this is meant to prevent fires that are sparked by electrical equipment and reduce the amount of power outages. And so PG&E announced in 2021 that it wants to underground 10,000 miles of power lines across Northern California, specifically in areas that have a high wildfire risk. They haven't said yet when they hope to complete this project. They've only described it as a multi-year plan, but they do plan to bury 600 miles by the end of this year and another 2,300 miles by 2026. And so far, as of today, they've only completed 270 miles. Mm. Okay, so they have quite a bit to go. And one of these neighborhoods that really wants to have this done, undergrounding, is this small neighborhood in Oakland called Montclair. Residents there are urging PG&E to bury their power lines. Tell me more about Montclair. What makes this particular neighborhood vulnerable to wildfires? 
Montclair is a neighborhood located just north of Highway 13 in the hills. Um, It has a population of about 6,800 people. And the roads there are very narrow and windy, which makes it vulnerable to wildfires because, you know, if a catastrophic fire were to spark, it would be difficult for residents to quickly and safely escape their homes while fire trucks and other emergency crews are racing up, you know, trying to put the fire out. Cal Fire has also designated Montclair as a very high severity zone, which is basically just an area considered by state and local officials to be among the most vulnerable in the state. Mm. Um, So this combination of, you know, the dense population and the difficulty of entering and exiting are all reasons why Montclair residents believe that their, you know, their neighborhood should be included in PG&E's plan. Mm. So... Why isn't Montclair on PG's priority list for undergrounding, even though Cal Fire says it's very high risk for wildfires? A spokesperson from PG&E told me that Montclair is not on the list um, because they say that there are power lines in higher risk areas. So far in the Bay Area, there are six counties that made the list um, for the plan through 2024. And those are Solano, Contra Costa, San Mateo, Sonoma, Marin, and Alameda County. Uh, Solano is the only county where they're going to bury more than 100 miles. The other counties, it's just like one to four miles. You know, the way that they identify these areas, they use this thing called a machine learning based risk model, which looks at, you know, an area's terrain and fuel conditions, the conditions of electrical equipment there. They say they work with local officials to consider, you know, the fire history, the difficulty of controlling a fire there and its accessibility. So again, going back to how difficult it is to enter and exit the area. But Montclair residents argue that PG&E should also consider, you know, an area's population density when it comes to choosing places. And they say that Montclair should be unconsidered and also have their power lines underground there. Mm. Now, one of these Montclair residents that you spoke to is Cynthia Barbera, who's behind this effort to petition PG&E to move more quickly to underground their power lines. Let's listen to a little bit about why this issue is so important to her. Not a day passes that we don't worry about this. For every resident, this is a matter of life and death. I walk the neighborhood, we promoted this petition, and everybody is so eager to sign it, we feel like we're sitting ducks here until something is done. So, Jessica, a lot of concern there. Tell me a little bit more about how these residents have been getting organized around this issue. Yeah, Cynthia, she is sort of the spokesperson for the group. um, And a group of residents have come together to read through the documents, um, through PG&E's documents. They've been going door to door, talking to people, uh, telling them about the petition, getting folks to sign and putting up flyers around the neighborhood. They've also been in contact with PG&E, sharing their concerns with them and two other state agencies who are in charge of overseeing PG&E's plans. And also Oakland officials here um, have expressed their support for the petition. They've written letters to PG&E, also urging them to include Montclair. The residents, the neighbors, Cynthia, they've definitely been on this and, you know, continuing their advocacy work with it. And how much support have they gotten for this effort? They've had more than 2,600 people sign the petition. So, and I know Cynthia says she keeps going out every weekend talking to people. So they've gotten a lot of support for this, for sure. Mm. And the reason why, Jessica, this, this issue is so important to them is because these residents 
have direct memories of the 1991 Oakland firestorm, which claimed more than 20 lives. Pushed by 30 mile an hour winds, flames swept down along the Oakland Berkeley Hills, destroying everything in its path. Five people died when the fast moving flames consumed one home so fast the occupants didn't have a chance to escape. So this issue is really personal, right? Yeah, it is. Cynthia mentioned that during that firestorm, her father was stuck in their home and they had trouble getting in touch with him. He was hard of hearing. We could not reach him. We could not contact him. And towards the end, we couldn't even get to him. Had the fires in 1991 burned another 10 minutes, our house probably would have burned with him inside. So this is personal for me. This is personal for our neighbors. Many of them have a story shared like this. They're hoping that PG&E will take it serious, will take their petition serious to underground their power lines so they don't have to experience something like this. Now, at the same time, PG&E has said that they are addressing the wildfire risks in Montclair. How are they saying they're doing that? PG&E said they've done a few things to reduce the risk there. They've added three weather stations. They said they had one undergrounding project, but they didn't tell me when that happened. And they've also done these two overhead system hardening projects, which involves replacing the poles and covering the conductors on the power line so that it can withstand severe weather conditions. Jessica, is there more that the state could do to help utility companies like PG&E underground more lines in the neighborhood and maybe do it faster? Yeah, last year, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that would speed up these undergrounding plans by large utility companies like PG&E by providing federal and state funds. Um, this law also appointed two state agencies, which are the Public Utilities Commission and the Office of Energy Infrastructure Safety. And these two agencies are basically in charge of approving and overseeing the cost of these plans, the progress reports, and the wildfire mitigation plans that they have. So each utility company has to submit a plan. And from what I know now, they're still reviewing their plans and still have to submit it. So they haven't gone through that process yet. Now, Jessica, I just spoke to our colleague, Curtis Alexander, and, you know, we still don't really know how this fire season is going to be, if it's going to be as bad as recent years or if it's going to be milder. In the meantime, just how are these Montclair residents feeling as, you know, fire season approaches and we wait to see how it unfolds? I think many are feeling nervous and afraid. As the weather gets hotter, there's a sense of foreboding every night you worry, do I hear a helicopter? Could there be a fire up on the ridge? You worry every day, any spark could just start going. And in minutes, you've got to leave your home. There is a broadly shared sense of terror that this could happen again. And that the likelihood that we will have a fire here is probable. So it's not whether we may have a fire, it's that we probably will, and we need to mitigate the risk. I just think that speaks to what it feels like to live in a vulnerable area and kind of always expecting and preparing for the worst. Mm. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for your reporting. I appreciate you sharing it with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Jessica Flores is an engagement reporter at The Chronicle. Find her reporting, including her story about the efforts to bury PG&E power lines in Montclair, 
online at sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. Thanks to Jessica and guest Chronicle reporter Curtis Alexander. You can find a story on wildfire risk on the site now, as well as the Chronicle's full wildfire survival guide in print on July 16th and online at sfchronicle.com slash survival. This episode was produced and edited by Keith Manconi. Thank you for listening.